0: We'll be focusing on the second half, but listen carefully to Ephesians chapter 1 as we read the Word of God. Paul is writing to the church there, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In the Greek, that's all one sentence. This is the second sentence. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we've come to sit under the teaching of your word. And so we ask that you will enable us to come with interest and attentiveness by the power of your Holy Spirit. Grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we find here in Scripture. And enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might understand it and put it into practice. Do that desperately needed work in each of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In 1899, there were two wealthy bicycle manufacturers in Dayton, Ohio. And they began to make plans to build the world's uh, first ever successful flying machine. The world would eventually come to know these men as the Wright Brothers, Wilbur and Orville, creators of the world's first airplane. The brothers first began testing gliders in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. It's on the Outer Banks, and you can go there and see where they did this. And they started in the early 1900s learning how to master how to control objects in flight, John? Have we still ma- have we mastered that yet? Controlling objects in flight. Hey, uh, it's nice to have a resident rocket scientist. He told me the the main thing to remember was pointy end up, fiery end down. So good to know. Glad he's launching those on the other side of the world. Welcome home. Anyway, once the Wright brothers uh, learned and understood air movement. And its effect on flying objects, all that remained was to add power. And by the end of 1903, four years later, the Wright brothers had created the world's first powered airplane. So they headed back to Kitty Hawk to test their creation. And on December 17, 1903, Wilbur and Orville Wright made the first sustained gasoline-powered controlled flight in aviation history. Man had learned how to fly. Soon trips that had taken days would be made in a few hours. Ecstatic with their new invention and their accomplishment, the Wright brothers immediately telegraphed this message to their sister Catherine back in Dayton, Ohio Quote, We have actually flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. Their sister, Catherine, understanding the importance of this incredible event, ran to the editor of the local newspaper and showed him the message. The editor, one of the first people to be made aware of this world-changing event, glanced at the message and ecstatically exclaimed, how nice, the boys will be home for Christmas. It's hard to imagine... How such an important, world-changing event, like being the first person to fly, could fail to make an impact on a professional newspaper editor. And yet there are times when we're all that clueless. I myself have been known to be oblivious at one time or another. Hard to believe, I know. I once commented to my wife that a friend of ours seemed to be putting on a little weight, at which point my wife reminded me that our friend was six months pregnant. (laughs) I knew that. (laughs) I had the information I needed. I just remained oblivious to what that meant. But we often live our Christian lives that way. We remain oblivious, our lives unimpacted, By what we know of the gospel, we live as though we don't fully grasp what we have in Christ. You know, we respond like the newspaper editor, how nice, we're going to heaven. But according to today's passage, we have an eternal hope, riches unimaginable, and a power at work in us that is beyond comprehension. But it fails to make a difference in our daily lives. We live often As though we have no hope, wondering why we should even get out of bed in the morning. We go about defeated as though to be a Christian is to be on the losing side. We question what benefit there is in following Christ in the here and now when all we hear about is that what we'll uh, eventually receive someday. And what good is it trying to live for Christ when our efforts are weak and we constantly fail and we act as weak, hopeless, and defeated people, completely oblivious to what we say we have in Christ? We have more than we could possibly imagine right now, but we remain clueless. Apparently, the Apostle Paul found a similar situation in the church in Ephesus. They, too, were often oblivious to what was theirs in Christ, They had the information, they had the theology, but they didn't always believe it deep down in their hearts. They remained clueless. And so Paul prays here in Ephesians 1 that God would remove their spiritual obliviousness. I don't know if that's a word or not. Remove their spiritual obliviousness. It's a word now. By giving them a spirit of revelation so they can see with their hearts what is theirs in Christ. And just like them, because of our obliviousness, new word, God has to remove that. He has to remove our spiritual cluelessness. We can't remove it ourselves. So Paul prays that God would remove the Ephesians and our spiritual cluelessness. And he begins his request by reminding us who it is that's doing the work and that he's already started that work and what is that work that he's getting done and how is he getting that work done. And finally, why does all of these things lead us to pray? So if we're going to make any headway in uh, building our prayer life, we have to begin by listening to Scripture and asking God's help and understanding how to apply Scripture to our lives and to our church. As I've said before, the aim of this series is simply to work through several of Paul's prayers in such a way that we hear God speak to us today and to find direction to improve our praying, both for God's glory and for our good. First thing we see here is that sovereign love leads us to pray. Sovereign love. That should be the first blank there in your outline. Before we jump into the text, I have a confession to make, um, another one. For a long time, whenever I've read this prayer, it has seemed difficult to understand. For one thing, as I said in the Greek text, verses 3 through 14, and then verses 15 to 23, each constitute one long, complex sentence filled with phrases and clauses just piled up on top of each other. And it's very easy to get lost in the details and miss the message. But that would be a shame uh, to discount it simply because it's hard, because it's complex, because it's actually an amazing prayer. As he does frequently, Paul links the content of the prayer in verse 15 through 23 with the praise that he offers God in verses 3 through 14. His opening words in verse 15 forge this link. He says, For this reason. The words for this reason refer to the line of thought in the earlier verses. There God is praised because he has, verse 3, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The crowning evidence for this uh, blessing is stunning. Verse 4 he says... Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's an act of sovereign love. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then he goes on, he says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. None of those blessings were bestowed on us because of of any intrinsic goodness or worth on our part. They're all, uh, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And that reference to Jesus spurs Paul to sort of enlarge in verses 7 to 10 on what Jesus has accomplished. Then he returns to his central theme in verse 11. He says, in him sometime, go through this chapter and just circle the number of times it says, in him or in Christ. That's the central focus here. He says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we too, verse 12, might be to the praise of his glory. Paul wants his readers to rest assured that the we of whom he's been speaking includes them. Verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel, of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Paul has now set himself up to pray, and he says, For this reason... For what reason? Some think Paul is saying no more that he heard of the Ephesians' faith, so he decided to pray for them. But surely that focuses way too narrowly on a very small part of that very long sentence in verses 3 through 14. And moreover, verse 15 mentions that Paul hears about the faith of the Ephesians, yet he treats that report as something different from the reason that accounts for his prayer. It's far more likely that the words, for this reason, refer to all of verses 3 through 14, and specifically to its central theme of God's sovereign work in believers. In a spirit of profound worship, Paul has been outlining God's sovereignty, especially in salvation, as the anchor for his grace and the source of all the blessings that are enjoyed by his people. And as he thinks about these things, Paul finds specific things to pray for. What God has sovereignly accomplished already constitutes uh, the specific reason for Paul to pray as he does in line with God's will and God's purposes. And so, in short, Paul's prayer here, starting at verse 15, is a model of how to pray under the sovereignty of God. In particular, Paul's prayer reports... um, his report emphasizes three different aspects of God's sovereignty. So with that said, let's look at his specific prayer and those three aspects of God's sovereignty. And the the first one, starting in verse uh, 15, is that sovereign grace leads us to pray. We had sovereign love, that was that whole first section, and now here, sovereign grace leads us to pray. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul, having heard about uh, these Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus, their love towards all their saints, sees in their conversion and their transformation, a wonderful example of God's sovereign grace in the lives of men and women. And with the words, for this reason, he dramatically ties his prayer to what God has sovereignly done in them. As exemplified, as seen in their faith and love. Because it's God who's worked in them. Paul hasn't stopped thanking God. Because it's God alone who sovereignly and graciously continues to work in them. And he's the one who has to be petitioned to continue his good work. To keep going. To keep transforming and changing them. So Paul commits himself to remembering you in my prayers. In short, because God is sovereign, Paul offers thanksgiving for God's sovereign grace in the lives of these believers. Now he's not thanking the believers for their faith and love. He's thanking God for their faith and love. The assumption, of course, is that apart from God's work, these people never would have been converted. Without God, they would never display faith in the Lord Jesus and love towards all the saints. In the same way, we thank God when we recognize his work in our lives. And so also we should thank God when we hear of his work in the lives of others. If we hear of substantial numbers of people in another country who've been transformed by the gospel, we wouldn't think of going to them to thank them for becoming Christians. Said we thank God. For them becoming Christians. And that's what Paul's doing. So, if we intend to imitate the prayers of Paul, we'll pay careful attention to reports that we hear of the progress of the gospel, not only immediately around us, but from anywhere, from places we've never been to. We may receive prayer letters from one of our missionaries, from the Milans, or people in uh, France, or from the Padillas, or down on the, the Mexican border. Um, we may read news reports found in some Christian magazine or on some Christian website. We may just be listening to the reports from Marcy and Anne-Marie when they come back from wherever God sent them this week. But whenever we hear reliable reports of people who have, by God's grace, become Christians, we need to respond as Paul does, immediately turning to the God whose sovereign grace has intervened in their lives and offer him our thanksgiving. If the Bible tells us that the angels in heaven rejoice over a single sinner who repents, It doesn't seem like too much to ask the people of God to offer thanksgiving for the same thing. Sovereign love, sovereign grace. And then we have sovereign purpose. Paul looks at God's sovereign purpose, which leads us to pray. Verse 17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Think of we're going to start Daniel uh, next month. Just as Daniel prayed for the end of the exile, because God had promised that the exile would end, So Paul prays that Christians will grow in their knowledge of God because God has already declared His intention to expose His people to the glories of His grace now and for eternity. And just as Christians both in New Testament times and today cry out, even so, come Lord Jesus, because they know that Jesus has already promised to do just that. So also they pray that God would continue to work out His sovereign purpose and those in whom he's already begun to work. It's Paul's practice to ask for things that God has already said he wants us to have. So let's look specifically at what Paul asks for. First, his prayer is the Ephesians might know God better. That's what the text says. Of all the things Paul might have asked for, that's what he puts at the top of his list. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. In the New Living Translation, that verse is rendered, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. The NIV says, so that you may know Him better. Do you feel that you know God well enough surely no thoughtful christian would want to answer that question by saying yes in fact most of us would say that the more we get to know god the more we want to know him better that it's uh the more we get to know him the more we realize we don't know him enough and we need to know him more well how does this growing knowledge of god come about It comes about by approaching God in prayer by asking him to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation to the end that we might know him better. The one Paul addresses in prayer is the God God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. And that expression reminds us that the one to whom we pray has supremely disclosed himself to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, right at the beginning, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. All of God's blessings are mediated through His Son. Even more, all of God's blessings have already been secured for us by His Son. So that to pray in Jesus' name... Or to address God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is to recognize the ground on which God answers prayer requests. Jesus himself. And Paul prays that God might give these Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And what kind of God will answer such a prayer? It is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For all of God's blessings have been won for us through Christ's work. We need the Spirit of God to reveal himself, uh, to reveal more of himself and more of his ways to us if we're going to know God better. For it's the Spirit's mission to take the things that belong to the domain of God, the domain of glory, and bring them to us so that we can receive them. And only this work by God's Spirit will enable us to know Him better. And therefore, we have to pray for it. And if we fail to pray for it, we betray our interest in knowing God better, even though any serious reflection shows there's nothing more important in time and eternity than knowing God better. And therefore, we must earnestly pray that we might know Him better. In particular, Paul's prayers, we might have the insight needed to grasp certain spiritual and uh, truths, certain crucial truths. He asked God these believers would have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that they might learn certain things. And the Spirit reveals, and we have to be spiritually attuned to receive what God reveals by His Spirit. And the way Paul prays shows that he understands that it's ultimately God and God alone who both reveals and enables us to understand what he reveals. And that's why Paul prays, and that's why we should pray. So what is it then that Paul wants us to see with these enlightened eyes? First, he says he wants the Ephesians to understand the hope of their calling. That is the goal of their salvation. If you're a Christian, the hope of your calling is that aspect of salvation for which you still look forward. In other words, this hope is nothing less than life in the new heavens and the new earth, life in the presence of God. It's the hope in Romans 5, 2, which says, Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it's the hope in Colossians 3 4, which reads, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In our generation, which reflects too little on the future and almost never on eternity, it's distressingly obvious that we need help help from God to be able to know the hope to which we've been called. Only then will we become more interested in living with uh, kingdom values, with the uh, eternity in view. What will we have to show before the great king on the last day will be infinitely more important than what we leave behind here. Let me say that again. What we have to show the great king on the last day will be infinitely more important than what we leave behind here. The second blessing that Paul wants us to be able to grasp is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He continues the glory theme. We're God's inheritance, to use the language of John's gospel, we are those whom the Father has given to the Son. And God's uh, valuation, how God values his people, is established... By his valuation of Christ. Because he highly values Christ, he highly values the people whom he has given to Christ. And we need to know who we are as God sees us. Paul wants us to appreciate the value that God places on us, not because we're intrinsically worthy, but because we're identified with Christ. We've been chosen In Christ. His righteousness has been reckoned as ours. And it takes enlightened eyes to be able to see and understand these blessings that were given in Christ. It takes enlightened eyes to understand these blessings are part of God's sovereign purpose for our lives. Sovereign love, sovereign grace, sovereign purpose. God wants the eyes of our heart, to be enlightened. And then we have sovereign power. I'm starting at verse 19. Sovereign power leads us to pray. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And now Paul wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of of his power toward us who believe. Just what that power does as it operates in us is something that Paul doesn't expand on until his next prayer, which comes in Ephesians 3, and we're going to look at that next week. But for now, this much must be said. Paul cannot be satisfied with a brand of Christianity that is orthodox but dead, that is right but lifeless. Rich in the theory of justification, but powerless in transforming people's lives. Since it's God's sovereign power that Paul conceives of working in the lives of believers, he knows he must pray for it. And he knows he must pray that believers will know it and experience it in their lives. And having introduced the power of God he wants Christians to experience, he outlines what I would call its standard and controlling analogy. He explains what is. Analogy is when something is like something else. And he's going to tell you what God's power is like. The power for which Paul prays is like, verse 19, the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. What would you have chosen to describe God's power? If you taught... We have all these children come down to light the Advent wreath uh, during Advent every Sunday morning, and they're wonderful. How would you describe God's power to them? I'm inclined to think of God's uh, power in creation. God speaks and worlds leap into being. I think of God designing each star and upholding the universe by his powerful word. His power extends beyond the limits of our imagination. But that's not what Paul turns to. After all, for a, an omnipotent God, there aren't degrees of difficulty. You know, it's not like we're looking at at what God does and holding up little signs that say 9.4, 8.6, you know, a perfect 10... There's no one act that is most powerful. Paul doesn't look for the most powerful or the most difficult displays of God's power. When they're applied to God, they're essentially meaningless. He looks for the most glorious, the most revealing. And as a result, he focuses on three events. First, he mentions the power exerted when Christ was raised from the dead. The power that Christians must experience is like the power, verse 20, that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's the kind of power Paul's talking about. That's the kind of power he wants to be in your life. The kind of power that God exercised when he raised Christ from the dead. Paul thinks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ here as the undoing of death and the destruction of sin. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of a mighty resurrection that will mock the death of death and inaugurate a new heaven and a new earth. (coughs) It's small wonder that Paul declares in Philippians (coughs) 3.10. He says, I might know him and the power of his resurrection. We tend to read over that and say, yeah, okay, you know, that's a good thing. He's saying here, That's the the most glorious, the most revealing thing. That's the kind of power we need to know. He says, I, Paul, that's the kind of power I want to know. That's the kind of power I want in my life. The power of his resurrection. Second, he describes the power displayed in the exalted Christ. Christ. The power that we are to experience is like the power that God exerts in Christ when, verse 20 and 21, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's a lot of power. He's seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And if we went right into the next chapter, Paul would say we're seated right there with him. There are levels of authority of which we know very little. Demonic powers, angelic powers, powers of the seraphim and the cherubim not only in this world, but in the heavenlies. Colossians 1.16, speaking of Christ, says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And over all of them is Christ Jesus elevated to the Father's right hand in consequences of his obedience to death and his victorious resurrection. That's the second way. Paul describes power. He's seated at God's right hand. And then he declares the power that's exercised by Christ over everything. End of our passage, he says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All of God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your your enemies your footstool. And the passage he quotes right here, in uh, the end of Ephesians 1, is actually quoted from Psalm 8. But most amazingly... All of this sovereign power is for the good of the church. Christ is the head over everything. Uh, that is, he exercises authority over everything. And although Christ is the head over everything, he is in particular the head of the church, which is his body. He's ideally placed to ensure that all of his sovereign power is exercised for his people's good. All our days are health health our illnesses, our joys, our victories, our tears, our prayers, and the answers to our prayers all fall within the sweep of the sovereign power of the one who wears a human face, a thorn-shadowed face. All of God's sovereign power is mediated through the one who was crucified on your behalf. For Christians, that means God's sovereignty can no longer be uh, viewed as uh, merely an important part of our confession of faith. It means we can't view God's sovereignty as a source of endless mystery. I mean, there's certainly more than enough material here for our confession of faith. And there's uh, uh, plenty to be the source of endless mystery. But these mysteries revolve around the one who died in my place. The mysteries of prayer remain, but they should dissolve in worship and gratitude. And it's far easier to accept those mysteries of God's sovereignty when God's divine love and God's divine grace are as great as God's divine power all of this sovereign power is exercised for the church that's a stunning thought I had to read over that several times when I was preparing for this he says to the church to the church why is that there it would all be true if we took that phrase out Christ would still be the head over everything He says, all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Verse 22. That's amazing. What an incentive to pray in line with God's purposes for his people. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we will sometimes come to places where as we try to think about God, we will conclude that these things are way beyond us, that we cannot take them in, that we cannot comprehend him. But if we focus on what God has revealed of himself, such thoughts become a ground for worship and an incentive to approach this sovereign, loving, gracious, powerful God And intercede with him according to his own purposes as declared in scripture. For his son's glory and for his people's good. You know there's a fictitious story floating around the internet. It's a great story but it's not true. I looked it up. But it's a great story about a young man uh, during the days of the telegraph. That went to apply for a job as a Morse code telegraph operator the office, he walks into the telegraph office. It's quite noisy. It's full of all sorts of sounds. There's the telegraph constantly clicking away and there's just a whole bunch of other applicants waiting there in the office to be called in for their interview. The young man enters the office and takes off his coat and sort of lays it over the back of the chair and he's given an application, told to sit down wait to be called. He's sort of at the end of the line But after about a minute, he suddenly just jumps up and barges right into the boss's office. And a few minutes later, the boss comes out and says, the rest of you can go home. I just hired this man. And of course, they're furious. He says, that's not fair. We've been waiting here all day. He just barged into your office uninvited. The boss said, yeah, well, the whole time you've been sitting here, the telegraph in the background has been clicking out in Morse code. If you understand this message, come into my office. The job is yours. This is the only guy who heard it. The message was there, but the rest of the applicants were oblivious to it. Only the guy with the ear and the mind for Morse code got the message. The truth of the gospel is always here in Scripture. And so many remain oblivious to it. But God is taking away our cluelessness. He's giving us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so we can understand what has been revealed. And God has revealed the grandeur and the splendor of what we have in Christ. And he gives us a spirit to understand that revelation. Now, the stereotype for Presbyterians is that we're theologically arrogant, hard to believe. Somehow we're convinced that we're on a higher theological level because of our deep understanding of God's revelation. And this passage warns us to be humble, realizing that it's only by God's grace and giving us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we can know him and understand anything. But more often than not, however, my experience has been that many of us are actually uh, intimidated by God's Word. It's not that we're, you know, Bible scholars. So many of us remain oblivious to what God has revealed because we don't feel qualified to study His revelation. It's so often assumed that studying God's revelation is for those who are academically advanced. It's too complicated, it's too deep to be understood by average people, leaving many of us clueless as to what God has revealed until someone points it out in Sunday school or in a sermon or in a Bible study. I mean, why do you think I have some of the elders preach every year? I mean, if those guys can get it, you can get it. That's true. That's true. Actually, when they preach, they work very hard to get it right. And by and large, they do a good job. But it's not academics that enables them to preach. It's not academics that enables me to preach. Without the power of the Holy Spirit speaking through and working through His Word, then week after week, this would be a disaster. And none of you would still be sitting here. The truth of this passage is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God has given all of us a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we can know Him. You don't have to be intimidated by God's Word. But the fact is, the same spirit of revelation that enabled me to study this passage this week is the same spirit that's at work in you right now. Don't remain oblivious, be confident. God has revealed the truth of the gospel in scripture and he'll give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation to understand it. So read the Bible, study the Bible, not relying on your own abilities, but the spirit which is at work within you, revealing and enabling you to grasp the truth of the gospel that God has revealed because that is yours in Christ Jesus think about that you need to pray